Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Nehemiah chapter 9, um, it really it shows us the model uh, of what it looks like, uh, not just in, in, in my life or in your life individually, but it shows us what it looks like in the life of a a community of believers when, when God moves honestly and truly in their hearts and, and in their lives. And when God moves in the, the life of a believer or when God moves in the life of a church, he asks us to, to do some things. And a lot of what, what he asks us to do, oftentimes uh, we don't like to do or we don't really think we have the need to do, uh, but God asks for repentance. God asks for his believers, his children, to be a, a people who are, are living a life of, of worship, who are living a life of adoration to him, and who are living a life of, of true, honest, regular Repentance, and that can be that can be hard for a lot of us. Um, October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, uh, is an important date in in Christian history. Uh, it's the first Halloween. No, it's it's not. It has nothing to do with Halloween. Uh, this on this day, Martin Luther nailed his ninety five theses uh, to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and this this started the the Reformation. Uh, which birthed the modern Christian movement today. And, and really, we are here uh, as Bible-believing Baptists because of what Martin Luther did uh, back in 1517. Now, there's a lot of things that he, he, he believed that we don't agree with, uh, but his, his belief uh, that disagreed with the church of the day really started the Protestant Reformation and really led to us being here today. And one of the things that he believed in strongly that was different from what the church at the time taught was that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone. We're not saved by good works. Uh, we're not saved by, by trying to be a better person. We are saved solely by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. Uh, that's the only thing that saves us. And it, it doesn't take anything, it doesn't take anything from us to be saved, except simple faith of believing that he did for us what we could never do. Now that, that seems obvious to us now. You know, it's it's 2023, uh, and it's a snowy Sunday morning, and you are watching a church service uh, from a Baptist church. So you, you, to you, that's like, well, of course, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we all know. <clears throat> but in, in 1517, that was a radical idea. Uh, salvation by faith alone uh, went against the teaching of the church. And so what Martin Luther was doing was he was protesting a movement that said we could earn God's favor, that you could earn salvation from God. But one of the, the worst things that he was, now that's, that's terrible. One of the other things he was protesting 
and it is agreed with, was that if you, after you had earned salvation from God, then you could earn forgiveness for your sins by paying tribute to the church. That you, you went out and you sinned uh, to get forgiveness from God. All you had to do was go to the church, tell the, the priest, and then pay him whatever he said was due for your sin. So you come to the priest and say, hey, I lied to my wife. Oh, well, that's just, you know, $5 and God will forgive you. Oh, I cheated on my wife. Oh, that's $100 and God will forgive you. Now, that, that's a great fundraising uh, opportunity, but it's not scriptural. Uh, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can earn God's favor for salvation or pay for God's forgiveness after salvation. True biblical Christianity teaches us that we are 100% dependent on God's mercy and God's grace for salvation and for forgiveness of sins after salvation. Now, we, if, if, when we really are honest with ourselves, we know no matter who we are, no matter how we were raised, no matter how, how moral we may appear to be to uh, the world's standards, that in our own uh, abilities, in our own strength, in our own goodness, we have no right to stand before God. On our own merits, we have no right to, to come before God, to pray to God, to ask anything of God, because in our own merits, we are dirty, filthy sinners deserving of eternity, separated from God, burning in hell. And that, that we need to understand that. that. That's a huge part of having a, a, a true relationship with God the Father. Now, we understand that at salvation, you know, to, to truly be saved, you have to believe that. You have to believe that in your own abilities, in your own merits, in your own works, you are condemned to eternity and hell separated from God, that the only way for you to find salvation uh, and find eternity with God is to put your trust and your faith in what he did for you, that he died on the cross, that he absorbed the wrath of God for your sins. He became sin for you, was buried and rose three days later, to become sin for you, to give you God's righteousness. And we have to believe that for salvation. But we also have to believe that for a relationship with God after salvation. It's not like once we get saved, all of a sudden, now we are perfect. Now, and it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, we, we teach and the Bible teaches that when God sees you, he sees you as, as righteous as Jesus Christ. Jesus took your sin, gave you his righteousness, so that God sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful. But we also still have that flesh inside of us. And when we sin, not if, when we sin, we still have to rely on God's mercy and grace to forgive us of those sins and restore us back to a right standing with God. And so to do that, we have to, we really have to be humble. We, we have to be, to be weak and needy before God. And we, we have to acknowledge that we cannot live the way God's word tells us to live without his mercy and his grace very real and very evident in our lives. 
uh, the first line of Martin Luther's theses that he nailed <coughs> to the church was, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer should be of repentance. Repentance is something we have to do for salvation. We repent of what we were trusting in, our, our good works, or whatever it is. We repent of that, and repentance literally means turning away from. So we turn away from what we were trusting in for our eternal security, and we put our trust only in what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. We have to repent to be saved. But repentance isn't a, a one-time thing that we do as believers. Repentance is a life that we live. We should be a people who are continually repenting before God because we are a people who are continually sinning against God. Uh, repentance is, is something that we use to show our need for God's mercy and God's grace in our life. If salvation is by grace alone in Christ, then repentance is how we show uh, what that looks like in our life. Repentance is how we show that we believe that's needed for every aspect of our life. And Nehemiah 9 shows us what it looks like when God's people realize their needs, their need for continued repentance. And of course, we saw last week in chapter 8 uh, how they truly, for the first time in, in, in centuries, had truly worshipped God. They, they read the law. They were convicted of their sin against God. They, they wept because of their sin, and they observed the, the, the festivals and the feasts that happen. Of course, the first day of the ninth month, that's the new year, but there's a lot of things going on there. There's the, the Day of Atonement. There's the Feast of Tabernacles. There's uh, all these, the, these different feasts and festivals that really take over the entire month, and it's really the most holy month uh, in the the Jewish calendar, and for the first time, they've obeyed all these these different things. For the first time since the days of Joshua, they observed the Feast of, of Tabernacles, and they've observed these holy festivals. And so, at the end of chapter eight, they've they've read the Word of God, they've been convicted of their sin, they've wept over their sin, they've observed these holy holidays that they hadn't done. In hundreds of years, and it, humanly speaking, from the outside looking in, man, they're doing great. They're they're looking holy. They're living a holy life. From the outside looking in, they look like a very religious group of people. And at this time, they are. But that's a dangerous place to be uh, because they could have felt like, well, we've done everything we can. We've we've read the Bible. We've observed the holy days. We're, we're doing everything God has told us to do. So they could have kind of lifted up their head and said, man, we, we are a great group of people. And we are, we are just doing exactly what God looks. And so they could have held their held high, their, their heads high and, and looked the part, but their, their hearts could have still been wicked before God. And that's what we tend to do. We, we go to church. We read our Bibles. We give money to the church. We, we do all the right things, and we, we feel like we are holy. So we kind of hold our heads high, 
And that ends up we're, we're looking down on other uh, people. Um, and that's not, that's not what happened here, though. That's not what the nation of Israel did in this situation. A life of true faith is a life of ongoing, continued repentance before God. So let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. <clears throat> now, on the 20 and 4th day of this month, that's, the, that's the, the same month, the ninth month of the year, the 20 and 4th day it, it marks the end of all these, these Jewish festivals and Jewish feasts and holy days. And so the, the religious season is over. They've observed all the festivals. They've observed all the feasts. And, and during this time, uh, the Day of Atonement and, and all these feasts of tabernacles and the Feast of Bread, man, they, they are, it is like Thanksgiving for a month. They are eating and they are feasting and they are celebrating and they are worshiping. And it's just, it's a time of, of really kind of decadence and, and just over overindulgence. But it's, it's God letting them do that and really telling them to do that, to remember his provision and his goodness to them. And so they've had this entire month of worshiping God and having these festivals and having these feasts. And man, it's, just, it's been a great time. It's kind of like a 24-day revival with a fifth Sunday fellowship after every single service. And so they're, 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 they're full of God. They're full of everything. I mean, it's just been a wonderful time. So now on the 20th and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel was, were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers and they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord, their God. So this is an amazing scene. Uh, after a month of, of worshiping and a month of, of feasts and just, just, just thanking God for the wonderful blessings he's given to them, they take a time and they're fasting They've and they're not and we'll get into this. they're not fasting because they've eaten too much for 24 days and they're trying to lose that weight. They're fasting for a specific purpose. They're putting sackcloth on for a specific purpose. We're going to get into later, and they are reading the law of God. It says for a quarter of the, for six hours, they are reading the Bible for six hours. They are listening to the priests preach to them. And then for six hours, they are confessing their sins. They are worshiping God and repenting of their sins. So for an entire 12-hour period, they're hearing preaching and repenting of the sins in their life. Now let's keep reading in verse number four. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani, Kadamiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Shabiah, Bani, and Chiniah, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, and Kedemiah, Bani, Hashbaniah, uh, Shidabaniah, uh, Hojadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaliah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and bless be thy glorious name, was exalted above all blessing and praise. And so right now, uh, with these just five verses in mind, and again, we are going to look at the entire 
uh, chapter. So don't think, oh, he's only reading five verses. No, we're going to get to the whole thing. Uh, and we're going to get to it quickly, I promise. But as we, we look at, at, at chapter number nine, uh, we really need to see what true repentance in the life of a believer, in the life of a church, looks like. And the first thing that it requires is true repentance requires knowing yourself. You have to know who you really are. And we see clearly that in these verses, uh, they realized that they were dependent on God for mercy and grace. And again, they're coming off a, an incredible uh, time. They, they've, in 52 days, they've completely rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. They've put the doors in. The city is secure. The temple is built. The worship's been reestablished. They've got people on guard. They've got uh, people who are kind of running the community, and they're, they're good, godly people. It's not the people that were in charge who were really more in, in, in involved, you know, interested in getting money for themselves and power for themselves. They are our true, godly people who are leading worship, who are kind of leading the community, who are guarding them. And God did, they, they did this, but of course God used them to. But it'd be very easy for them to sit back and say, man, look what we did. Because this wasn't like in the wilderness where they could see clearly God doing these works, where, where God clearly parted the Red Sea. There was no way after they crossed the Red Sea for them to look back and say, man, we sure did a good job parting that Red Sea. There was no way for them to get up every morning and have the manna on the ground and say, man, I'm sure glad I planted as manna seed so every day we could have food. No, that was obviously from God. They saw God give water from a rock. It wasn't because of their genius engineering to figure out how to turn rock into water. It was God doing it. It was clear. It was evident. Here, yes, God did the work through the people, but the people could have sat back and said, man, we, we sure are great builders. We sure are great organizers. Look at what we did in just 52 days. We are awesome people. But at the end of all that, at the end of, of this incredible worship time of God, they say, God, we know we need you. We know if it wasn't for your mercy, if it wasn't for your grace, if it wasn't for your power, none of this would have happened. They remembered God's kindness and, and provision. They've, they've just fasted, I mean, feasted. So they spent 24 days just thanking God and remembering God for his wonderful provision on their life. And now they return to a time of fasting, remembering, they remembered God's kindness and provision. And then they fasted to remember that they were dependent on him. Fasting is a vital part of the life of the believer. It is a, and fasting is sometimes, it's very it kind of spiritual to us and we don't really understand it. Uh, but fasting is a, is a predetermined time in the life of a believer where we, we deny ourselves something. In this case, they deny themselves food. And fasting from food is a, is a great way to fast, but it's not the only thing you can fast from. You can fast from uh, technology, you can fast from all kinds of things. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But fasting is, is a time, it's a predetermined time in the life of the believer where we deny ourselves something that 
God has given us the right to, that God has blessed us with. God blessed them with food. God blesses us with food. So it is something that God has given us, has blessed us with, has provided for us, and we are saying, I'm going to deny myself that so I can remember that I need God. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, he said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. He didn't say when the pastor fastes, fasts. He didn't say when the deacons fast. Look, you've seen me. You've seen our deacons. Does it look like any of us have missed a meal? No. Fasting is not just for the leadership. It's not just for the super spiritual people. It's for every child of God. Now, fasting to us from the outside, it can seem like a, a sign of spiritual maturity and spiritual strength. Uh, and we can, we can really use it to kind of puff ourselves up. I remember when I was in Bible college, I had a Bible college uh, professor uh, who fasted for 40 days. And, uh, that, that, and that's wonderful, that's great, and that's incredible. But then he taught a class about how he fasted for 40 days and, and all the things that, that he did to get through this fast and, and what God did for him. And look, I understand when you, when you have a spiritual you know, experience like that, you kind of want to share it and God wants to share it. But and at the time, I thought, man, this guy, man, he's so spiritual. And he, he is. I'm not, he, this, this, I talk a lot about my Bible college professors. This is a good one. Uh, he's a good uh, professor, good, good preacher, good, I believe a good godly man. Um, but it kind of got me thinking, man, if he's that spiritual, then, then I can be that spiritual. And so I, I fasted for 40 days and I did it and man, it was miserable. I was hungry the whole time. Uh, I was cranky the whole time. I got weak the whole time. Uh, but I did it and I didn't, I didn't do it so that I could show God how much I needed him. I didn't do it so I could get some great revelation from God about my life. I did it so I could say, I fasted for 40 days just like he did, just like Jesus did. Look how spiritual I am. And so fasting can really make us puffed up. It can make us feel like we're super spiritual people. And we like to, you know, oh God, look how great I am. And tell other people, oh yeah, I fasted once for 40 days. And that was so great. And look, I'm telling you, I fasted for 40 days. And it's not because I was spiritual. It's because I was proud. And I wanted to do it. But fasting... If we truly fast the way God tells us to, it's not a sign of spiritual maturity and spiritual strength. It is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's not a sign of spiritual strength. It's a sign of spiritual weakness. It's a sign of dependence on God. It is realizing that everything we have comes from him and we need him to provide everything for us. And it's hard for us to do that sometimes. You know, I mean, think about it. Every one of us were, were alive this morning. That, that came from God. We are breathing oxygen this morning. That is from God gave us the oxygen. He can very easily turn that oxygen off, and then we're going to see how much we need him. And look, sometimes I think it'd be, it'd be, he ought to do that every once in a while, just shut the oxygen off for 30 seconds and put a big you know, sign in the sky. God gave it to you. God can take it away. And man, everybody believed him. But everything we have, we depend on him to give it to us. The, our, our food, our, our shelter, everything is remembered. Fasting reminds us that we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve his goodness. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his provision. 
And so everything we have comes from him and is a gift from God. It is denying ourselves of something to remind ourselves of God's goodness and God's provision in our life. And it's difficult for us because we live in an instant culture. Anything you want, you can have it within 24 hours. You, you need, you, I mean, even especially, it's, it's terrible today. <clears throat> I mean, you can have anything delivered to your house with, within an hour, with DoorDash and, and GrubHub and all these things. You want Chinese food? You don't have to go out and get Chinese food. You can have Chinese food brought to your house, and you don't got to wait for it. It's, it's boom, right there. You want a, a new pair of shoes? You can order them from Amazon, and they'll be here within 24 hours with prime shipping. And so we live in an instant culture, and so denying ourselves is hard for us. Uh, and so it seems strange to us. But the life of the believer is a life that says, if it were not for God's goodness and mercy on my life, I would have nothing. And so what, what this passage and what other passages in the Bible tells us is that if we don't have a habit of fasting, it's because you don't see how weak you are. It's because you don't see how needy you are. It's because you don't see how dependent on God you are. And I'll be honest with you, I struggle with that. That, well, I need God for everything. Yeah, I, I say it, you know, theologically, I know, I know it. Intellectually, I know it. But living a life that shows, God, I need you for everything. I, I, I need you for my health. I need you for my strength. I need you for my food. I need you for my oxygen. I need you for every, God. Everything I have is because of you and I need you to continue to bless me with it. And so if we don't have a habit of fasting, it means that we are comfortable in being self-reliant and we've forgotten how good God is to us. Once they realized they were dependent on God, their sin bothered them. They were fasting to show how much they needed God. And the Bible says they put on sackcloth and, and put dirt on their ha head. Uh, sackcloth, uh, really, it's like it's a burlap sack. It was used, they would make, it's this very rough material. It was designed to be tough. They would put rocks in it and, and use it to carry rocks around or, or vegetables around. And so it was, it was kind of just a, a handy sack to put everything in. It was designed to be tough. It was designed to be hard. And so when you wore it, it was not designed to be comfortable. It was, it was itchy. It was, it was scratchy. It was a very uncomfortable thing uh, to do. And so they were making themselves uncomfortable they were putting dirt on their heads to remind themselves of how filthy they were. Sin should make us uncomfortable. Sin should make us feel bad. And sin should make us seek God's forgiveness and God's help. When we ignore sin in our life, we become comfortable with it. Suddenly, the sin in our life doesn't bother us anymore. And sin should bother us. We should never be comfortable with sin, especially our own sin. See, we, we as believers, we are very bothered by the sin of the world. The sin of the world, we, 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 we talk about it. I know people who preach about it, who harp on it, they write blogs about it. They are so bothered by the sin of the world. I remember several months ago, 
uh, they, uh, the, 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 the music awards came on, not the Emmys or the Oscars. I, I don't know. I don't follow them. Uh, but the music awards came on and some artist who I, I've never heard of, uh, with another artist I've never heard of, did some, some, some show, some performance where he was the devil and she was a devil and they were basically worshiping the devil. And again, I didn't even, I, I didn't watch the show. I had no idea about it until the next morning when I saw Facebook, all of these Christian friends who were just so upset and so angry at these performers and about this award show allowing this kind of filth and wickedness to be broadcast across the airwaves. Man, we are, we get bothered by the sins of the world, but we don't get too bothered by our own sin. We get real bothered by abortion, but we're not bothered by pride in our lives. We are, we are, we get so many, these, these new uh, anti-LGBT laws and stuff that are going in effect, especially in like Tennessee and stuff, man, we're behind that because, man, we are so bothered by the sin of the LGBTQ community. But the hypocrisy in our life, it, it doesn't bother us. We'll continue watching what we watch that we know we shouldn't watch. We'll continue talking about people and gossiping and lying and sowing discord, thinking there's nothing wrong. I'm, I'm just trying to get the truth out. When all we're doing is we're hurting the kingdom of God, we're rebelling against what God's told us to do, and we, we don't care about our, our sin. We care about the world's sin. The sin that should bother you the most as a child of God is your sin. Not, not the world's sin. Not my, not my sin. Your sin. Your sin should bother you more than anyone else's. Your pride, your arrogance, your self-reliance, your hypocriticalness, your, your desire to do whatever you want to do and don't care about God, that's the sin that should bother you the most. And so their sin was bothering them, and they showed that by dealing with their sin. Look at verse 2 again. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, they separated themselves from, the Bible calls them the strangers in the land. These are, these are, are, are Gentiles who were not converted Jews. So they're not separating themselves from other Jews or people who, they don't, you know, who, who are kind of different than them. These are people who truly do not believe in God. And again, in the church, we're real good about separating from people but that's not what you're talking about. They didn't separate from them because they didn't like them or they were bothered by their sin. They separated from them so they could spend time confessing their own sins. They didn't do it out of spite or hate. They were more concerned with the sin in their lives than the sin in the lives of the Gentiles who did not worship God, who did not believe in God, who did not serve God. Their sins are like, you know, that, that's them. I got to deal with my sin. I got to deal with what's going on in my heart. Uh, they were more concerned with their sins and the sins in the church than in the sins in the world. And that's what we should, that's how we should be. Yes, should sin in the world bother us? Of course it should, but not more than our own, our own sin. Should we try to do things to, to, to combat the sin in the world? Yes, but I don't think we should be doing legislation to stop it. I think we should be dealing with it so it doesn't affect us and affect our families. 
but the sin of the world shouldn't bother me as much as my sin and my, my family's sin, that I've got to protect, I've got to deal with that, I've got to help that, I've got to, I've got to take care of that in my own life. We, we, should spend, we can spend our entire life focused on trying to deal with the sins of the world, trying to deal with it, trying to stop with it, trying to stop it. But instead of doing that, we should be dealing with the sin in our life first. Worry less about the sins of society and worry more about your sin. We were not called to judge the world. God will do that. God will judge the world. We weren't called to judge the world. We were called to deal with ourselves. And look, here's the thing. Why would we expect the lost world to obey the word of God? They don't believe in God. They don't serve God. They didn't sign up for that. We did. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we committed to God, we're going to love you, we're going to serve you, we're going to obey your word and everything you tell us to do. The world never said that, never agreed to do that. Hollywood never agreed to do that. You know, the, the unsaved world never agreed to do that. So why are we so concerned that they're not obeying the Bible? They don't believe the Bible. We should be more concerned that believers aren't obeying the Bible, that we are not obeying the the Bible. And so repentance requires obedience to God. And he, he that when God shows us the sin in our life, we confess it, we forsake it, we deal with it in our life. We don't, we don't spend so much time worrying about the world's sin. We worry about our sin. Sorry about that. Somebody's walking. Scarlet! We worry about our sin and not the world's sin. The day you stop caring about your sin is a bad day. The day you start worrying, stop worrying about your sin, worry more about the world's sin. Or here's another. You stop worrying about your sin and start worrying about other believers' sins. Now, should we care about other believers' sins? Yes. We are called, you know, in, in Genesis uh, God asked Cain where Abel is, and he says, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. We are our brother's keepers. We are responsible to help other brothers and sisters in Christ deal with their sin and get right with God. But the day I'm more concerned about what you're watching instead of what I'm watching, the day I worry about how you're lying instead of how I'm lying, the day I worry about what, what you're doing in the privacy of your own instead of what I am, more than what I am, that's a bad day. Because I'm putting your sin as worse than my sin. And my sin is just as bad. My sin hurts my relationship more with God than your sin does. Your sin doesn't hurt my relationship with God. My sin does. And the day I stop worrying about it is a bad day. It is a day that I have stopped believing or stopped living like I truly need God for everything in my life. True repentance means we know who we are. We are sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners, desperate and dependent on the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God. Second thing repentance requires is repentance requires not only knowing myself, repentance requires truly knowing God. Look at uh, chapter nine, verse number six. <clears throat> now, and this is, this is where the prayer starts. Thou, even thou art Lord alone, 
Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all the things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. So to, to really know God, here's what they start doing. They start by, by recognizing who God is, that, that God is the great, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who everything belongs to. Since, since, all of it, since everything is God, since everything in the earth, everything in the heavens, since everything is God's, he has the right to take it anytime he wants to. He can take anything he wants to because it's all his anyway. It helps us to realize, it helps to realize who you're talking to when you're, you're talking to God. God is not the man upstairs. God is not just some, some great figment in the sky. He is the creator and the owner of everything. The only reason that we are alive is because of God's love and God's mercy. Today is a gift of God to you. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. See, and here's the thing. God created you. God owns you. And God knows everything about you, which can be scary, but it's also freeing. Since God knows everything about me, I can be honest with him. There's, there's no point in me trying to lie to God. He knows who I am. He knows the, the thoughts and the intents of my heart. He knows the, the deepest, darkest desires I deal with and I struggle with. He knows everything about me. So why am I going to try to lie to him? I can be honest with him. I can honestly and say, God, I need you. Let's keep reading verse number seven. Okay, the, this prayer is showing us what they knew about God and how we can know God. So first of all, know he's the creator and he's the sustainer and he's the owner of everything. Second thing, verse number seven. Thou art the Lord, the God, who did choose Abram and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And found us his heart, and found his heart faithful before thee, and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Gigasites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed thy words, for thou art righteous. So they, they saw that not only God was powerful, creator, and owner of everything, but God is a faithful God who keeps his word. God never breaks a promise. God always keeps his word. And so God is a God who keeps his word and God is holy. They remembered how, how God called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees and promised him a land that his, his inhabitants would, would, would inherit and would, would live in one day. And they're living in that land right now. They're, they're living in the fulfillment of the promise of God, uh, how God was faithful to us. See, God doesn't want to destroy us with repentance. Repentance isn't a, a punishment. Repentance isn't God trying to, to kind of smash down on us to remind us how wicked we are. God want, is, gives us repentance to restore us to a relationship and fellowship with him. God calls us to salvation. And for, to be saved, we have to see who we truly are, not who we pretend to be. We have to see that we are truly sinners, 
deserving of and condemned to hell. Not, oh, well, we pretend to be good people, so that's what we really are. No, we see that we are truly wicked, vile. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, that we are rebels against God. And despite all of that, God loves us anyway because he is faithful to keep his word and is a holy, righteous, and loving God. Look at verse number nine. And now did us see the affliction of the father, our fathers in Egypt and hardened and heard us the cry by the Red Sea and now show us signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants and upon and on all the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against him. So, so didst thou give thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and their prosecutors Thou threwest into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou ledest them in the day uh, by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, and gave them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. And gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock of their for their thirst, and pr uh, promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. They saw that God was a redeeming God who brings us out of slavery. He he performed incredible works in Egypt to bring Israel out of slavery from Egypt. He gave them a new way to live. And he didn't do it to punish them, but he gave them this new life to live and this new standard of living on Mount Sinai. He gave them the Ten Commandments. In the wilderness, he gives the law. And he didn't give that to them to, to punish them, but he gave us this way of living to free us from the bondage and the slavery of sin. He provides for them in the desert. And God has purchased us from the bondage of sin, from the punishment of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so repentance isn't God adding chains to us, it is removing the chains of sin from us. Hypocrisy is slavery. Pride is slavery. Gossip and slander and sowing discord in the children of God is slavery. Hiding who we are is slavery. Denying that you are truly a sinner before God is slavery. And repentance brings freedom. It frees us from the bondage of trying to be who we are not and who we cannot be. It brings us joy. Let's keep reading in verse 16. <clears throat> See, we're going to get through the rest of this chapter pretty quick, I promise you. Uh, verse 16 uh, says, But they and our fathers dealt proudly, and hardened their necks, and hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou did among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art God, ready to pardon gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsook them not. Yea, when they had made 
them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great pr provocations. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them uh, light and the way to light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gave also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheld not thy manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Yea, 40 years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old and their feet swelled not. They realized that God is a merciful, loving God who is patient to us even in our rebellion. And that's an incredible imagery that he gives in this passage. He talks about stiffening the neck. That's that's a kind of it's a it's a in the Hebrew, it's a reference to an ox that doesn't want to be used to plow. You know, oxen and 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 they can be very stubborn animals. They're very strong animals. So really, if an ox doesn't want to do something, it's really hard to make it do it. And this refers to an ox who doesn't want to have the yoke put on it to be told what to do, and it doesn't want to be used to plow the field, but it wants the blessing of the, of the farmer. It wants the blessing of the, of the pasture. It wants to be fed. It wants to be watered. It wants to be sheltered, but it doesn't want to do the work. So it stiffens its neck so the, the farmer can't put that yoke on it. Uh, now, that it wants to do whatever it wants to do. I uh, have the farmer take care of him, but it doesn't want the yoke. And, and that's what we tend to do. We want God's blessing on our life. We want God's provision in our life. But we, we too often don't want to obey all of his word. We want, we want to do our own thing. How does God respond to that? How does God respond to us as his children when we take his grace, we take his mercy, but we forsake his word. We say, God, we'll take from you, but we're not giving you obedience. We're not giving you dedication. We're not giving you what you ask of us. Look at verse 17. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. That is the God that we serve. He is a loving God, a gracious God, a forgiving God who is slow to anger. He invites us to a life of repentance. He doesn't give up on us. Even it talks about in Egypt, you know, they, they come out of Egypt and God's giving them water from a rock. God's giving them manna from heaven every single day. Even God gave them quail to eat every once in a while. So God's taking very good care of them. And what do they do? Man, it was better back in Egypt. We had, we had garlic and onions and leeks, and we had all this wonderful food. We're better off being slaves to the Egyptians than being free men serving God. But God didn't, didn't destroy them. God didn't turn his back on them. God was patient and loving and asked them to repent. Even when Israel blasphemed his name, he didn't give up on them. He loved them, he blessed them, he took care of them. We serve a loving, gracious, forgiving God. Let's look at verse 22. Moreover, thou gave them kingdoms and nations and to divide them into corners so they possessed the land of Shion 
uh, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. <clears throat> um, their children also multiplied thou as the stars of heaven, and broughteth them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest them, uh, subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and oliveyards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat, and they delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn uh, to thee. And thou wrought great provocation. So they saw that God was a, a God that blesses us, that wants to give us good things, even in our rebellion. 16 times in this passage, God is called a giving God. He continues to give to his people that give nothing back to him. God doesn't call us out of sin uh, just to, 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 to give us eternity in heaven. He doesn't call us to a life of repentance to take from us. God doesn't want to shame us. God doesn't want to belittle us. He doesn't want to take from us. It says even here, hey, they rebelled against you. They're throwing your word behind their back. They're ignoring you. They're, they're killing your prophets. But you still gave them kingdoms. You still gave them good things. You still provided <clears throat> for them. Uh, God is a God that wants to give to us. Think about what God has given you. Just think about the blessings that God... Well, first of all, he, you're, you're alive this morning. He's given you life today. He's given you another day on this earth to praise him and to glorify him. If you're watching on Facebook, hey, he's given you internet and he's given you power and he's given you Wi-Fi. He's given you technology to still listen to the word of God even when it's dangerous to go out. God's fed us. God's closed us. I mean, every single one of us, I guarantee you, every one of us watching this this broadcast or listening later, we have more than one set of clothes in our closet. We got more than one set of underwear. You got more underwear than you need. You got more socks than you need. You got more clothes than you need. We've all, God has blessed us so much. He has blessed us with more than we could imagine. But what have we given him? Rebellion, sinfulness, selfishness, ignoring his word, but he continues to bless us. That is who he is. God doesn't hold out on us. And when we forget that, we're prone to sin against him. Let's keep reading verse 27. Therefore, thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven and according to their manifold mercies, Thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies and testifiest against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet thou dealt proudly. Uh, yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not 
unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder, and hardened their necks, and would not hear. Yet many years as thou forbear them, and testifiest against them by thy spirit, in thy prophets, yet would they not give ear, therefore gavest them thou into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. They saw God as a loving God that disciplines his people because he loves them. God disciplines out of love. It, the Bible says throughout Scripture, <clears throat> God corrects, God disciplines those that he loves. And so allowing Israel to be conquered by the Babylonians and taken into captivity wasn't out of anger or wrath or hate or malice. He wasn't trying to destroy them. He was disciplining them because he loved them. And we know that because he didn't abandon them. They're enslaved. He let them be taken in slavery in Egypt because of their sin. But when they cried out, God delivered them. We see in the book of Judges, because of Israel's sin, they would turn from God and start worshiping these false gods and going away from God. God would send a nation in to bring them captive and, and to enslave them, the Philistines and the Canaanites, and they would suffer, but then they would cry out to God. And what would God do? God would deliver them. They've been taken captive by the Babylonians because of their sin. But they cry out to God, and what does God do? God restores them. He brings them back into fellowship with him. He, he didn't abandon them. When, they, call, when he, they called out to him, he heard them, and he delivered them. Because God loves you, God will discipline you. Because God loves you, some bad things may happen. But it's not because God's trying to, to send his vengeance on you or to pour his wrath. The wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. He absorbed that wrath. So God's not, not disciplining us because he's, he's trying to crush us and make us submit to his will. He, allow, he disciplines us because he loves us and he's trying to bring us back to fellowship with him. Just like he did with Israel. Let's keep reading verse number 32. Read the, first, the rest of this, this chapter. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that thou hast come upon us, on our kings and on our princes and on our priests and on our prophets and on our fathers and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right. But we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments, and thy testimonies wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdoms, in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase of the kings whom thou hast set over us before, uh, set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle 
and at our pastors, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, uh, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Now, that, this doesn't really seem like a great way to end a prayer, uh, talking about how, how God is, is going to, how God's punished them and God's wrath is on them. Uh, but here's what it's talking about. They saw God as a righteous God that does what is right even when we don't. Even when we do wrong, God does what is right. They reaped what they had sowed. They sowed sin, so they were reaping the, the, the benefits of their sin, which is captivity, which is slavery, which is famine and all these, these difficult times. And so they called out to God to be merciful to them in their sinfulness. We see his righteousness on display when, uh, when, when he takes it. He takes his righteousness and gives it to a sinner. God came in the flesh, lived a perfect life. He died a death we should have died. He absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. He took our punishment, took our place, was buried and rose again to give us his righteousness. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That is the greatest exchange that has ever happened in the history of the world. And repentance requires that we see God as he truly is. God is the creator and owner of of everything. God is a faithful God that keeps his word. God is a loving God that brings us out of the slavery of sin. God is a merciful and patient God even when we continue to sin against him time and time again. God is a God that blesses us even in our rebellion and he loves us so he disciplines us and God is a righteous God that does what is right. To rebuild, to restore, we as believers have to live a life of repentance. And that is not a one-time thing. To do that, we have to see who we really are. We are sinners who have rejected God time and time again, even after salvation, and who tend to go our own way. And look, Again, it's easy to look at the world and say, yep, the world's full of sinners. Or look at a group at the church and say, yep, the church's full of no, no, no. I am a sinner who rebels against God constantly, who rejects God constantly, who goes my own way constantly. And I need to worry about my sin and my wickedness and my sinfulness more than anyone else's, especially more than the world's. Because they didn't, they didn't sign up to obey God. I did. But see myself as who I truly am, but also see God as he truly is. A loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. We are a deeply flawed people who are deeply loved by God. And when we truly see that, it leads us to a life of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.